chapter 8 in Romans, verses 29 through 39. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who made, excuse me, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give, give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Messiah who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. I want to start off with a question for you this morning. Has anyone... uh, have you ever been lied to before? Yeah. Gosh, whoa. <laughs> now, I don't mean as any, I don't mean like someone just told you, like they lied in one time kind of thing. I mean, like if you dealt with people or somebody who it seems like it gets to the point where the pattern is such that everything, you just stop believing them. I mean, they say, hey, it's going to, it's going to be, it's sunny outside. Let's go for a hike. And you say, hold, hold on a second. You got to look outside just to make sure because you don't know. Maybe it's, you know, you have no idea. You just can't trust the most basic things that they say. Um, I, I was thinking this uh, recently, about a, about a month or month and a half ago, that seems like it's crazy it's been that long, I had a, a company come to my house to do some, some basic plumbing work, and when they were there, the, f- the first uh, visit they were there, they broke a piece of their equipment, so they had to come back. And so they were, oh, we're going to come back this weekend and take care of this. Well, this weekend, I'm talking to the owner of the company, this weekend turned into, you know, oh, Tuesday. And then Tuesday turned into, oh, Thursday will we'll come by. Thursday turned, you know, I called, Thursday turns into, oh, you know, I just got back in town. Things just weren't adding up, and it was Monday, and so forth. And what ended up happening is about four weeks later, they, they came and did the job, and it took about 30 minutes. So, you know, I waited four weeks for about a 30-minute job. But through that process, you know, not only did I decide never to use the company again, but <laughs> I also got extremely cynical uh, about everything the owner of this company told me. In other words, when he said, I'm going to come you know, this day, and then he, he, whatever, he, whatever he had analyzed about my situation, it just went in one ear and out the other, and I just said, just, just get this thing done, and, and I can be done with you. I just basically had become calloused to whatever he said, uh, not believing it for a second. Now, I hoped it was true because I, I needed the stuff done, but I really didn't have much belief that it was going to really happen. And you know that, unfortunately, dealing with people in this world, that's, all, that's a lot of times that's how life is. You know, and you probably have some similar stories 
We won't take them right now. I won't open the mic up for those, but I'm sure you've got some similar stories of situations like that. I know I do. That's just one recent story. I've got stories with that, with coworkers, all kinds of stuff. But how about our spiritual lives? In other words, do you ever get cynical about that? In other words, you, you, you know that the, the things that God has said in his word, yet you act as if it's just another day of, of listening to lies. Now, you don't call them lies. Okay, I know that. You're not calling the, the promises of God lies. But maybe you've got yourself convinced along the lines of, uh, yeah, I know that's true, but you know, right now, at this point in my life, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm at a particular, I'm in a funk or something, or I don't really feel close to God right now. And I know these things are true, but I just don't really feel very close to him right now. Well, that's a lie. And when we think that way, we need to do just what we do with that person who lies to us. In other words, we need to just let it come in one ear and really need to let it go out the other ear, giving no resting place at all for that thought. And so today, we're going to look at this passage that Tracy read from the end of of chapter 8 of Romans, and a passage that, you know, after after looking at it a little more in depth this week, and hopefully after us reviewing some of the the highlights of it this week, it really stands out to me as as the antithesis, the opposite of, of that lie that God's not actively involved with us through all these different situations. It's, it's one of these um, things that I think really needs to be cemented as a foundational truth and a foundational promise for us if we're going to successfully walk by the Spirit. And that's what we've been talking about the last several weeks, probably the last month or so. The kind of the theme has been um, this idea of walking by the Spirit, excuse me, versus walking by the flesh. So again, I hope that what we look at today will, will, will really, again, be a foundational truth for us in that respect and how we can do that. Because to walk by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit, you, you've got to first, uh, first of all believe and understand what His promises are. And actually, if you look, that's what I titled my message today. Uh, it was in the last minute, actually. I forgot to send it to Linda, and she asked me, and I, I knew what I'd been thinking about, but I didn't title it. But the title is uh, Promises That Can Help Us Walk in the Spirit. So promises that can help us to walk in the Spirit. So if you have your Bible still, I am going to go through some of the verses uh, in, a, in a little detail, and some others just kind of in general terms. But starting off in verse 29 and 30, verses 29 and 30, just to reread those, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Anyone ever heard this passage before? Is that you really one that you've heard taught on a lot? And you know, it's it's one of those one of those passages that brings up uh, people kind of zero in on it and focus on this with regard to uh, the big predestination or free will question. And they look at this passage as we need to really pull this passage apart. You know, I, I've I've read if you and if you've read any uh, books about this passage, you'll you'll get into some details on. Let's define you know, predestined and justified and glorified and, and called and all these kind of things. And you'll see, um, you'll see people that will they'll, they'll, they'll draw flow charts in the order and pr- all this kind of really technical stuff and draw sets of people and subsets of people and really trying to pull this all apart, put it back together so that we can ultimately say, ah, now I understand exactly what this is talking about. And it fits into my nice little linear uh, you know, uh, 
theological system here. Now, I don't mean to, to, to belittle that thought or the idea of trying to dig into Scripture to understand what's being said, but if we simply look at a passage like this, that it's got a lot of details and a lot of depth behind it, we can go, we can go and look at all those terms in detail, but if we do that in an attempt to kind of boil it all down to some linear system and fit it into our, our theology, if you will, um, we risk missing the point of really what's being said there, the bigger picture of what's being said. When we try to just remove all this complexity, which there's complexity there, and, 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 and nor should we attempt to do that. Because the way that we really need to consider the Word of God is we need to, we need to read it, we need to realize there are things that, that we understand, there are things that are clear, there are things that God's clearly trying to tell us. And beyond that, we do what, what Yeshua says, is that we, we knock on the door. We knock on God's door, we, we ask, we, we says, seek and you shall find, and knock and the door shall be opened to you. And we allow the Scripture to, to settle in us and hopefully move us toward worship. Um, and again, if you, if you end up trying that method of figuring this stuff all out, what you end up doing is you end up seeing there's plenty of evidence on both sides of the equation, whether God called us, whether God didn't call us, are we chosen, not chosen. And as I was reading this verse this week, reading this section in particular, I found myself getting sucked into that, because you know, I was reading some commentaries and things, I found myself getting sucked into that argument. Really, I really need to figure this out so I can explain all this stuff. And I, I, I just stopped for a minute, and I said, you know what, I'm just going to stop doing this because I kept going, you go around and around in circles and trying to, wait a minute, who were the elect predestined again? And you're going all over and figuring this stuff out. Um, so I said, let me just forget this, and I'm going to go on. And I went to the next verse, and this is the first time I really saw this verse in, in this light. After I had sort of struggled and struggled with all these traditional, you know, uh, explanations of, of, of the details here in verses 29 and 30. And I went to verse 31, and it was, it was a bit freeing because it was almost as if Paul had anticipated my question or my dilemma. And in verse 31, after this sort of complicated two sentences, Paul says, what then are we to say about these things? And I said, yes, Paul, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm asking. What can I say about these things? So I, he continues, he said, if God is for us, who is against us? And I realized that this, is, this whole, uh, the preceding verses were not all about, you know, uh, is God sovereign? Does he give us choice? Do we have choice? Did we, are we called? This kind of stuff. But that what continues through this whole section here, and actually even earlier on in the book, is about um, the love of the Father and the effect that that needs to have on us as believers, which is what, what I'm, we're talking about today. Um, you can actually see this earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 5. It says, Paul says, but God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. So here in chapter 8, when you kind of read the, the book of Romans from the beginning up to here, you see that, that Paul is sort of wrapping up several things here. He's wrapping up certainly the, that verses 30 and 29 and 30 there, which are very confusing, I think. But he's also wrapping up a bigger section of Scripture here, um, explaining what, and arguing for what he has been since the beginning of the book, and that's namely God's love. So the first promise, again, talked about these are promises that are going to help us walk in the Spirit. If you want to take notes, you can. If you don't, that's fine. But if you are, the first promise... Um, is right here in verse 31. And that promise is that if God is for us, who is against us? And it was talked about, uh, Floyd mentioned it in the praying for the kids today. S excuse me, same idea. If God is for us, who is against us? The, uh, the message translation by Eugene Peterson, if you're familiar with that translation, some people give it a hard time, but sometimes it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of nice the way he puts things. His translation puts it this way, this promise. He says, with God on our side like this, how can we lose? 
So after that, now Paul goes into some more details, really trying to paint the picture of, of what God has, in fact, done for us. Because, again, I think that's sort of the culmination of what he's trying to get to. Look, if God's, you know, God's for us, who can be against us? So what has God done for us? So verse 32 says that he who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not uh, with him also give us everything else? This is... Um, one of these is kind of a Hebrew way of, of argumentation or philosophy called uh, the kol the homer is what it's called. It's the light and the heavy. You've got two aspects of basically, the, in some way, the the argument goes that hey, if, if this was done, you know, this this, how much more would this be done? You know, and it's this kind of argument that he's going on here. But it's an interesting verse here in verse thirty-two because uh, the the language that's used there about withholding his only son harkens back to uh, Genesis chapter 22 and the binding of Isaac. Um, and many people see this connection, and, it's very, and the, the language itself is very specific because if you remember Genesis 22 and the, the binding of Isaac, the Akedah that we read in Genesis 22, um, if you remember the story, Isaac had waited, I mean, I'm sorry, Abraham had waited uh, a couple decades, 25 years basically for, to, to have his son that was promised to him. And then God tells him to kill him. And that... Abraham obliges and walks off with Isaac to, to do this. And right before he's getting ready to plunge the knife into his son, uh, the angel of the Lord steps in and says, don't harm the boy. He says, you know, we know that you fear God, you love God, because you've not withheld your only son. And it's the exact same language there. And here in Romans uh, 8, um, it's also, it says God's own son. It just doesn't say the son of God. Sometimes we see just the son of God, but this is his own son, his so it, it, there's, a, there's a connection there between, between these two passages in Genesis 22 and, and uh, Romans 8. And here's, you, know, you might ask, well, why is that important? As Chaim would say, I'm glad you asked. I think, at least for me, that this, become, th- this connection with, with the Akedah and the binding of Isaac and Paul here explaining what God has done, to me, makes it more vivid. Now, you, you may... I think I'm a heretic here for a second, but bear with me. There are t- honestly, we throw that term around quite a lot, I think, that phrase of uh, God gave his son, God gave his son, God gave his only son, God gave his only son. And at some point, I think it loses its impact. And when I think about uh, Genesis 22 and the binding of Isaac, that actually, that, that when I really put myself, because I can put myself a little more in that situation of, you know, of leading my child somewhere to kill them and to put a knife in them. And you see the picture sometimes, and it's, that's a bit more graphic for me and more strong. Again, from a theologically, is it more important that Yeshua died? Yes, that's not what I mean. But I mean, it, the picture, I think, becomes a little bit more vivid when I consider having to sacrifice my own child in that, in that manner. You might say, well, you know, you've got four others. What's the big deal? No, I mean, any one of them, you know? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The point is, the picture becomes a lot more vivid. So I think there's a that deliberate connection that, that Paul is saying there when he's hearkening his readers back to the same thing that Abraham did. Although what he's saying is that what Abraham was willing to do, and then you think about what was Abraham willing to do and what was he doing there with his only son getting ready to to put a knife into him, what Abraham was willing to do but did not do, God did by way of Yeshua's death. He did, in fact, kill his only son. And I think that's a a good connection to make that a lot more vivid for us. And I think what it does makes us realize that God's love for us which, again, is really what's being sp- spoken about here, his love for us is mind-boggling. And I don't know that we really get it. 
His, his love for us has passed what I would call the point of no return. You know, you and I, or me, how about this? I won't do the finger point, right? I think we tend to love, right? But to, a, to an extent, to some kind of threshold. You know, we'll love until maybe somebody hurts us or until we feel betrayed, right? Or until we don't feel that we're being uh, appreciated in some way. And then we back off. But God, I think, is showing us that he has no threshold. He has no limit on, on the love that he shows us. And again, what he says is, you know, Paul is telling us here that God has gone all the way, all the way to death, death of his own son. And because of that, this is the argument that we should have no question about anything else. And he says, because that's been done, that he'll, uh, most of your translations probably say, freely give us all things. Does anybody else's translation say anything else other than freely give us? Graciously? What translation is that? Verse 32. Because the word that's being used there, this verb for, for freely give, actually is the root word of the, of the word grace. Yeah, everything else. But the word is, the word is grace there. It's the same word that, that we get the word grace from. And it means, you know, to give or grant freely is a favor. In other words, he graces us with all things. There's a little different nuance, I think, when we look at it that way. Because it's not that we just simply get the things that we want or even the things that we need. It's the things, when you think about it in terms of grace, we're getting what we don't even deserve to begin with. And that's what he's giving us. So that brings us to the second promise, promise number two. Promise number one was if God is for us, who is against us, who can be against us. Promise number two is that God has gone the ultimate distance for us, therefore the rest is secure. The message uh, translation here again says it nice. They say it differently. It says that if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? In other words, he, has no, he doesn't have a threshold with us. And because of that, when we think about that, we shouldn't have any kind of threshold with him either in terms of trusting him. And like I said at the beginning, if we think that he's left us or not there with us or we're far from him, that's not the case. That, that's the lie. He has no threshold for us in that, in that manner, the way we put the threshold quite often. So the text continues with some more questions. You heard all, all these, like, I think it's like seven questions in total that Paul answered. He asked the questions, but these are, you know, these are questions that, uh, questions like if I say, what, do I look stupid to you? I don't expect you to answer. The question is no. I mean, the answer is no. <laughs> Same thing here. He's asking these questions about who can come against you, who can, what's that, Mr. Crane? Huh? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the question is, who can put a wedge between you and so forth? What can separate you? He's saying the answer no or nothing. And again, he's still building this case for God's love. I really want to make that clear because, again, if you get hung up on verses 29 and 30 and that whole, these formulaic things, you're missing what he continues to spend much more time arguing for. He's not arguing for predestination and chosenness and glorification and all these kind of things. He's arguing for the fact that the, the Father's love. So that's what he's still arguing for here. So the big idea here in the last few verses of chapter 8 is that he's really uh, hammering home the idea that there's nothing anywhere that can separate a believer from the love of God. And regardless of anything that does come our way, because we know things come our way, uh, verse 37 says that we are, um, most of, usually you'll, you'll hear um, more than conquerors. You know, we are more than conquerors. Uh, the, the word there is the word for conquerors, but it's like uber conquerors. It's ultra conquerors. It's hyper conquering. You could literally some translate it that way, overwhelmingly conquering. And it's an ongoing 
process. And, you know, I want to stop here for just a moment because I think we, we uh, when I mention that we're more than conquerors, it probably takes you to some point where you've heard that phrase or a situation where, you've, where that phrase has been used or invoked. And it's often, I think, sort of in a, in a motivational speaker kind of way, like a little pep talk, you know, like, you know, we, we're more than conquerors, so go out there and do it kind of thing. And I think that's often how, how we, can, we can get caught up in using that there. But I want you to look at the verse again. This is verse 37. It says, No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the key part there is the very end of that verse. The, the strength and the reality of us being more than conquerors, of us being hyper-conquerors and always conquering in this ongoing state, it's based on his love for us not based on us and not based on what we do. So again, arguing for God's love in this case and what it, what it does. So it's not on us, it's based on his love for us. Pardon me. So these last, these, this last section, these last verses, these are very strong statements that Paul is laying out for us here, this idea that nothing can separate um, a believer from God's love and the grace that he then provides, provides for them with, uh, provides for him or her with all things. You know, he's saying, look, not trouble, not hunger, not hardship, not poverty, not death, not anything at all. This is one of those, uh, if you've ever read any kind of, uh, like, legal documents, sometimes they, when, they, when they put settlements in place, they'll say, okay, we're going to give Isaac this, but here's the conditions. You're not going to pursue this again in the future. You're not going to pursue it in the past. You're not going to have anyone who was in the past, could have been in the past, pursue it in the past. You're not going to have anyone in the future who might possibly in the future be someone associated with you, any one of your heirs, designees, appointees. And they, they do all this kind of stuff. If you've ever read that. And this is kind of the same situation here that, look, whatever you can think of, what you might have thought of, what you thought you were going to think of, what someone might tell you to possibly think of, forget it. Nothing can, can, can get in your way. So this is, this is the language, and it's this legal language here. And uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny there. But this is a promise, you know. This is a promise, and it sounds great. It sounds great. But I want to stop and ask you something. In our reality, as, as, as Rabbi Chaim would say, in our, you know, the facts on the ground that we often encounter, can any of these things separate you from the love of God? No. Facts on the ground. How about trials and tribulations? Do people ever get focused on trials and tribulations and uh, forget that God is still with them? How about despair when it comes to it seems like life's not treating someone fairly. Does God just become front and center at that point? Mm-hmm. You know, beyond simply asking him to vindicate them. Mm-hmm. What about times of poverty? What about when there's needs and there's no finances to meet them? When people find themselves in that situation, do they just, man, put God right there regardless of their material lack? Is that their first thought? So again, can any of these things separate us from the love of God? Would you like to change your answer? <laughs> Let me ask it like this. Have any of these things separated you from the love of God? You know, there, there, there have been times in my life, uh, and I'm not going to say they were in the, as Chaim says, dim and distant past. They're pretty, I can remember them pretty recently. Where I get a little depressed, get a little down, uh, maybe start focusing on some you know, bright decisions I made, you know. And think about some, some money I spent and why did I do that. Or something I did at work, kind of you know, messed that up, and I kind of get into this funk. And uh, at that point, I, I don't really feel like associating with people at that time. Kind of want to withdraw, isolate myself a bit. Um, certainly from my family. When I get home, when I go home, I, I don't, I don't want to really have.
you know, talk with my wife or my kids. I just want to retreat down in the basement, be left alone while I try to figure all these things out and fix all the wonderful things that I've done. <laughs> now, during that time when I'm down there, has, have my family separated themselves from me? Or have I separated myself from them? And the reality is that I am the one. I am the one who's done the separating. They didn't send me to the basement. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't stop me from communicating. I did that on my own. And it's the same with our relationship with God. And if we feel distant, it's because we've placed ourselves there. You know, and again, do things cause us to feel like God has gone on vacation and we don't know where he is? I'd say yes. But that's a lie. You need to consider that thought in the same manner that, you know, I consider that plumber. One ear out the other. Don't give it any resting place. It's not true. Unless you plan on you know, apostatizing the Lord and standing up, renouncing your faith publicly, and, and, and even then we can talk about what God might potentially do with you, uh, then rest assured that the Lord knows where you are. He knows what's, what, what you're going through. Uh, he has you well in hand, and he has not separated, he has not separated himself from you. So promise number three. Promise number one. God for us, who can be against us, right? I want to give you the same terminology. Promise number two. Sorry, anybody write it down? I did earlier. God has gone the ultimate distance for us, so the rest is secure. Promise number three, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua. And moreover, we need to understand that not only can nothing separate us from the love of God that's in Messiah Yeshua, but verse 34 tells us where he is at this moment. And it says that Yeshua is at the right hand of God. In other words, we, we know the right hand of God is God's power, his strength, his, his ability to do things, right? He's at his right hand interceding for us. Does anyone have anything else other than interceding? I'm just curious. I didn't look at any. Pleading. Anything else? Interceding? Pleading? Anyone? Anyone? Well, those are good. The idea, the, because the, the, the word there is um, one of these, these, these current and ongoing things, these ongoing situations, and the, both those tr translations bring that out, that it's not like you're on the prayer list this week, but next week we're taking you off because you've been on there for three weeks, you know. <laughs> and that happens. We do that, I mean, honestly. But this is the fact is that Yeshua doesn't do that. He's ongoingly interceding for you continually, on your behalf, regardless of, of your condition. So again, promise number one, if God's for us, who can be against us? Promise number two, God has gone the ultimate distance for us, therefore the rest is secure. And number three, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Messiah Yeshua. And that takes us to the end, basically the end of the chapter here, and I think what we've done so far, what I've done is, is been the easy part. In other words, uh, deducing fairly, not in a forced way, because really these three promises are exactly what Paul said. I'm not making anything else up. Um, we've, we've pretty much figured out what Paul is telling us here about God, and I think that's the part that he's telling us. He's not telling us about God has chosen you, God hasn't chosen you. you don't, don't, some people panic when they read these verses about the, the predestination free will thing. But what he's saying is that, you know, he's telling us here about the love of God. That's the easy part. But the hard part, the harder part, I think, is living as if these were in fact true. That's what I'm trying to say, this idea of a lie versus truth. But that's part of walking by the Spirit and not the flesh. There's an ebb and flow between the two, you know. And we want to be on the, the ebb that's, that's closer to where we're, we're not doubting. That's walking, we're walking by the Spirit. 
And, and my goal, and I think the goal for each one of us here, should be to be able to say what Paul says here in verse 38. If you look at verse 38, Paul says, For I am convinced, and he goes, you know, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from that third promise there. But that I am convinced. Anyone have anything different there? I like hearing the different translations for that beginning of that verse 38. I am persuaded. Yeah, I've seen that one. Anything else? I am sure. I am assured. I would have our sister Sue Hecht come up and explain this particular form of this verb, but it's, it's very, it's very uh, it stands out. When you, if, if you look at the way the, the grammar is and language, it's in a form that basically uh, conveys that it's, uh, it's very much convinced, persuaded, but it's, an, it's, it's, it's a state of being. Basically, it's that I'm this way now, never to be that way again, and I'm going forward forever in this, in this fashion. I am currently and forever in a state of belief. It's a done deal. And how about you? Can you say that kind of thing? You're convinced, you're persuaded, meaning I was this way, I'm changed, I'm, th I'm going this way forever. About anything in your life, there's probably something you can come up with. But how about what we're talking about here with this understanding of these, these promises that Paul is laying out for us here? About understanding that the love of God is something that's inseparable and provides us with everything we need to walk in the Spirit. Today I encourage you to, to make that your prayer, that you would be in that convinced state that renders you changed forever and walking in that direction continually after that. I encourage you to stop believing the lies. I encourage you to stop allowing anything. And again, anything. Remember the anything? I don't need to go through that again. Anything to uh, become a wedge between you and God. To send yourself to the basement like I do. But I encourage you not to do it on your own, though. Again, this is not about you being more than a conqueror, remember? It's through the love of God. So I encourage you to realize that God's already made it that way. He's already made it so. And to remember that Yeshua continues to pray and he continues to intercede for you with the Father regarding your position with him. These are, these promises that, that we've looked at today, these are promises that we, we must believe in order to continue to walk in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. I ask you to help us to, to really understand the full impact of what that is and the full details of what we're involved in that, Lord. Help us to fully grasp the extent that you went in order to allow us the opportunity to be reconciled with you. Help us, Lord, to understand, to experience in our innermost being, Lord, the reality that with you on our side, there's nothing that can harm us, Lord. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen.